Orthodoxy of whatever color seems to demand a lifeless, imitative style. In our time, political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible. Things like the continuance of the British rule in India, Russian purges and deportations, the dropping of atomic bombs, can indeed be defended, but only by arguments which are too brutal for most people to face, and which do not square with the professed aims of political parties. Thus, political language has to consist largely of euphemism, question-begging, and sheer cloudy vagueness. Defenseless vi villages are bombarded from the air, inhabitants driven out into the countryside. The cattle are machine-gunned, the huts set on fire with incendiary bullets. This is called pacification. Millions of peasants are robbed of their farms and sent trudging along the roads with no more than they can carry. This is called the transfer of population. People are imprisoned for years without trial or shot in the back of the neck and sent to die of scurvy in arctic lumber camps. This is called elimination of unreliable elements. Such phraseology is needed if one wants to name things without calling up mental pictures of them. Consider, for instance, some comfortable English professor defending Russian totalitarianism. He cannot say outright, I believe in killing off your opponents when you can get good results by doing so. Therefore, he'll probably say something like, while freely conceding that the Soviet regime exhibits certain features which the humanitarian may be inclined to deplore, we must, I think, agree that a certain curtailment of the right to political opposition is an unavoidable concomitant of transitional periods and that the rigors which the Russian people have been called upon to undergo have been amply justified in the sphere of concrete achievement. Oh my god, what bullshit. Isn't that, isn't that not only crazy, but also, like, so relatable? Like, the way in which people, like, couch their kind of, like, um, darker intent in, the, in this, like, flowery language. Euphemisms. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and vagueness. And, um... Yeah. Ab like layer upon layer of abstraction so he says here a mass of latin words falls upon the facts like soft snow blurring the outlines and covering up all the details mass of latin words oh like using like big words yeah yeah needlessly big words yeah so yeah. he's kind of like the baroque complexity is used to like disguise Dist something simple yeah. and brutal distract yeah yeah. And makes him more elegant. Yeah. Or more palatable or acceptable, yeah. you know? And also it's like, because it's vague, people who hear it put their own interpretation over it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's ambiguous. So you can get people to buy into things that are the exact opposite of what they sound like. So, for example, um, some some cases that he talks about here... One is like, yeah, so the Catholic Church is opposed to persecution. Mm -hmm. So depending on what you mean by opposed, what you mean by persecution, you're able to couch a lot of dark behavior. Or like the Soviet press is the freest in the world. Um, and words he... He's, what? You, How can that even be said? Well, you could say something like people in the Soviet Union are imbued with class consciousness um, and are are privy to a deeper truth. They aren't clouded by capitalistic aims and therefore they, they're able to see more clearly than people in the decadent West who are, you know, just um, knee-deep in, in greed and propaganda. 
So yes, you know, the some of the facts may not completely match what we see on the ground. And yes, you know, there are certain topics that just wouldn't be right to talk about. But ultimately, you're free in the important ways. Ah, uh, there you go. Yeah. And even that's more direct than they would put it, you know. What's the one that you said before that? The Catholic Church is opposed to persecution. Yeah. I thought it was interesting what you said um, about... It depends on how you just define persecution and how you define opposed, because I wouldn't have thought of, you know, even depending on how you define opposed, but that's true because like, even if they define persecution in the normal sense, um, they could say opposed really just means like, you know, we prefer not to, but in situations where it's necessary for like, for the collective good, then it's something to resort to. Or yeah. something like that, you know? Yeah, 100%. Like it could be like just really clouding the whole issue, depending on how it's viewed, the definition is viewed. It, it allows, like, it, it allows multiple things. Like, it, it allows people to, like, layer upon it whatever they want to. Yeah, too much wiggle room. Yeah, but also what it does is it, like, Edmund Burke has this great quote where he's like, you know, these these um, propagandists will, like, pickle these quotes in pulpit eloquence for later use. So it, like, is this really nice, like, a little phrase. Um, and to bring things full circle, what we're talking about today is George Orwell's Politics in the English Language, which is an essay about <clears throat> the uses and abuses of language to support unconscionable political ends. Mm. Um, and also how bad writing and, and bad uh, rhetoric has this like self-perpetuating cycle with bad thinking hmm. so he's like bad thinking creates bad writing and rhetoric which then creates worse thinking and that creates like space for um, for you know nefarious players to basically like justify whatever they need to to pursue their nefarious ends yeah so I'd be interested in hearing more about what he means by bad like by bad now, what is bad thinking? What is bad writing? Because that, again, is, you know, there's whole moral philosophies based on defining what those words mean. 100%, which is why I thought this would be a really interesting essay for you, because with your creative writing and philosophy background, um, I thought that, first of all, I, I'd be curious to see if this, this squares with your understanding of what bad writing is. Um, but I'll give you some examples. So he starts off with... Um, with five passages and then he goes into like the principles uh i jumped ahead a little bit to kind of motivate the discussion because otherwise we're just talking about like language and bad writing and people are like why well the reason why is you know villagers being machine gunned um you know just the justification of imprisoning people without trial for like decades like all of these or, or look at some modern examples right like Every time there's a police shooting, like, the right wing will look at the victim and start, like, using these, like, canned phrases like career criminal, right? Yeah. These, like, little packaged phrases or, like... That introduce stigma right off the bat. Yeah, yeah. Or, like, on the flip side, you know, like, uh, there's a famous clip of uh, Ibram Kendi, who's, like, um, anti-racist kind of scholar, being asked to define racism. So, you know, vaguer, this this kind of vagary, these canned phrases are used today to, to justify, like, all sorts of, um, you know, 
political machinations um, by both sides, or even look at an example that's like um, somewhat apolitical. Like, are we jumping ahead already by going into this much detail? Like, I, I'm left wondering. Like, you were just about to introduce the beginning passages of, like, the foundations of his argument in his essay. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, these uh, passages. Uh, wait, before we get into that. Should we introduce ourselves like we had planned yeah. at this point? Yeah. Okay. So you go first today. So I'm Juliana Ryder, and I'm a software engineer in Silicon Valley. And? Not Silicon Valley. Right? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and so I'll be kind of on behalf of you, the audience, asking questions, hopefully ones that you are thinking yourselves. And I am... Yeah, so I've been giving like this this canned intro, but I'm gonna try to like be less canned with it. So basically, I, I'm a software designer out in Silicon Valley. Um, your name? Say yeah, your name. I'm I'm Ion. <laughs> uh, I'm the founder of like Read More. We're trying to get you to read more, but the reason why we're trying to get you to read more is to give you the tools to be a more independent thinker, uh, to be less swayed by a short attention span media environment where everyone is trying to like push you this way and that and kind of like frankly manipulate you um and also to give you exposure to your um, intellectual birthright you know there's like a incredible body of work that could really like enrich your life and enrich the lives of the people around you if you're able to engage with them but it's hard because of um because of just the add that's kind of like generated by the tech industry by quick hit media. So we're trying to use some of those techniques to kind of put the ball back in your court uh, and use this podcast to like celebrate that um, doom but defining task of self-perfection, which is something I always wrap into my intro because I think it's a good description of why a lot of us are here, like why we care about pushing ourselves to like read and learn and kind of like grow, you know? It's this endless quest for for truth and for improvement. and that's a quote by Isocrates on what makes... Um, Which part is the quote? Uh, the pursuit of the doomed but defining task of self-perfection. Oh, I thought you made that up. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I poached it from Isocrates. Because he's talking about like what makes a Hellene. So he's like, the Hellenes are all those who you know pursue the doomed but defining task of self-perfection. So it was a big deal because he didn't appeal to like you know, a racial category or, like, a a geographic category. He's not, like, the Hellenes are people who live in Athens, you know? He's, like, hey, no matter where you are, you're a Hellene if you have this, like, um, this this skull, you know? I love that. Yeah. Anyway, super long, uncanned intro. Um, So, politics in the English language, yeah. So, I think we've kind of motivated why we're talking about this. So, we'll jump right into some examples of... um, of bad writing, of degeneration in the English language, according to George Orwell. So here's an example from Professor Harold Lasky um, and his essay, Freedom of Expression. I'm not indeed sure whether it is not true to say that the Milton who once seemed not unlike a 17th century Shelley had not become, out of an experience, ever more bitter in each year, more alien to the founder of that Jesuit sect which nothing could induce him to tolerate. Um, 
So let me give you one more and then I'll uh, hear, hear your take on it. So all the best people from the gentlemen's clubs and all the frantic fascist captains united in common hatred of socialism and bestial horror of the rising tide of the mass revolutionary movement have turned to acts of provocation, to foul incendiarism, to medieval legends of poisoned wells, to legalize their own destruction of proletarian organizations. I pause because, like, there's that um, documentary, Wild Wild Country, about, like, Osho and his cult, and they actually did poison, like, the water in Oregon. Oh. Yeah, we should watch that at some point, but that's neither here nor there. Wait, what makes you think of that? Uh, well, he's, like, he's talking about how the, uh, basically, uh, yeah, yeah, so, um, all the best people from gentlemen's clubs that are fascist captains are turning to acts of provocation and to medieval legends of poisoned wells to legalize their destruction of proletarian organizations, to rouse the agitated petty bourgeoisie to chauvinistic fervor on behalf of the fight against the revolutionary way out of the crisis. So an example of, uh, of bad writing from a communist pamphlet from the 40s. So basically... He, his description of why these are bad. Wait, actually, what's your take? Like, what what do you think is is? Well, good sorry, or bad? I still didn't see the connection. Just like, uh, oh, with, you oh, just with read Osho? the text again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's talking about like you know medieval legends of poisoned wells and like Osho. Oh, so you were thinking of like literal poison wells of figurative. Yeah, yeah. Oh, although those might have been literal too. Uh, well, or there's probably some like literalism in like the origin of them. I'm yeah. sure poisoning a well was done. Well, yeah. Yeah. I just meant in the context that he was referring to. Yeah. Yeah, actually, it's really, um, there's some really interesting uh, discussion on the Unraveling podcast about, like, the witch hunts, like the Salem witch trials. Yeah. Um, and they talk about how, like, in Europe, like, prior to the era of witch hunts, there were actually, like, pagan rites, which were, you know, um violent and like kind of what do you call it twisted so they like freak people out and there's like a kernel of like something that these witch hunts were kind of spurred off of so for example like burning the wicker man um Mm -hmm. human sacrifice you know yeah but and then i was kind of staunched by witch hunting well, like, the witch hunting then, like, took that kernel and then, like, started to persecute regular people and, like, you know. So it basically capitalized upon fear and, like, there are these, like, consultants who will come to your town and, like, help you to find the witches. Oh, and God. What they would do is they'd find, like, the most unpopular person in the town. Oh, I'm sure. And they'd just be like, this is the witch and, you know. Oh, so horrible. Yeah, yeah. And actually relates to this, too. We'll come back to how how it relates to this, but um, I'll, I'll just say, like, um, what, what Orwell says about these passages and a handful of others mm-hmm. is they all have faults of their own, but quite apart from avoidable ugliness, two qualities common to them all. One is staleness of imagery, and he comes back to this a lot. Hmm. Um, and the other is lack of precision. How does he define both? Well, the second one seems a little more clear, but... What does he mean by the first one? Uh, Stale imagery? Yeah, so the staleness of imagery, what he's saying here is the prose consists less of words chosen for the sake of their meaning and more of 
phrases tacked together like the sections of a prefabricated hen house. So he's like, they're taking these tropes. So as an example from the year, like, um, fascist captains, bestial horror, rising tide, um, you know, petty bourgeoisie, you know, like all, all of these like canned phrases kind of mm-hmm. stitched together. Um, and he says it's like the writer either has a meaning and cannot express it or inadvertently says something else or is almost indifferent to whether his words mean anything at all. Hmm. Interesting to dig into in the movie a little bit more. So more using like canned phrases that he knows will evoke certain emotions mm-hmm. rather than phrases that like are getting at his meaning so that he gets people on his side. I, yes. Him being the writer of the bad writing or whatever. Yes. You know. I think I think yes and so the, the communist pamphlet absolutely his intent is to kind of like first of all like signal to the true believers um, similar to what I was saying about like the the right wing press and like this the shootings where they're like hey uh, career criminal you know rule of law like these these like code phrases kind of like get um, the people who are on your side um, riled up right or like in the case of the left like systematic racism. Uh, systems of oppression like um, in, in in those cases it's in group signaling as well as getting people riled up in the case of this professor who's like I am not indeed unsure whether it is not unlike true to you know like that guy well like triple negative yeah like the triple negative man like uh, his intent is just to sound smart but you know he he's he's and I think in um, in one of like David Hume's books, I, I read where like a, a section where he's like, a lot of philosophers just like hide behind intentional obscurity, mm. um, just to like you know seem smart and and, and um, just seem like impenetrable and hyper intellectual, um, and I think um, that's another reason why someone would do this. That makes sense um, to me. Yeah. So the feeling like if you don't understand, it's be. Because I'm smarter than you, that, like, trying to cultivate that feeling. Yeah, yeah. Amongst the, the audience. And, and I think it's also, like, a... It's also, like, an intellectual sleight of hand where people will come up with, you know, like, this, this um, you know, massive Latin words falling upon the truth like soft snow mm. so that you don't dig deeper. Because you're like, you know what, who am I? Like, I'm, I'm not an authority. Like, I, I didn't go to this fancy school. Yeah. They're telling me this. They have this whole theory. It's like really complicated. It's deep. Like you know, I I I'm a good person. Like what they're saying, I, I'm against bestial horror. Like what? Why, yeah. You know, and so like the phrases that are a little bit easier to grasp than like are what rally people behind the writings. Yeah, and this like wall of impenetrable intellectualism prevents you from digging deeper. And when you repeat it yourself, like George Orwell has a phrase where he's like. Every time you repeat a canned phrase like that, you anesthetize part of your brain, you know? And um, I, for this podcast, I'm initially, I'm intentionally choosing examples from like all over the spectrum because George Orwell himself, like, was an extremely intellectually courageous person who was never a party man. Like, he was against injustice in all its forms. Like, you know, he... Um, he was a socialist um, and a vowed socialist, but he wrote 1984 where the villains are Ingsoc, like English socialism. 
You know, he was he fought for communist militias against the fascists in Spain and was shot through the neck by a sniper. And he wrote Animal Farm against um, against Stalin. You know, and against like uh, honestly like English communists who were pro pro Stalin. And and it was to the point where his um, his publisher was completely incensed. And he did it almost intentionally to incense his publisher. He also wrote, you know, the road. Oh, tell me more about that. Yeah, let me let me see if I can like recount the case. But basically, he had a multi-book um, contract with this guy who was like a prominent English Marxist, and the guy ran like this thing called the Leftist Book Club. He would like mm-hmm. send out these books, and Orwell, you know, was always on this guy's shit list because he. <laughs> He or Orwell support, or supported what what this guy called like an emotional socialism. So Road to Wigan Pier, his like socialist track on like the English like lower classes, he was like living with them. Like he was, you know, he slept on the streets. Yeah, Orwell. Yeah. And like we were talking about, like if you actually think through what it would take to sleep on the streets. Like we live in the Bay Area. I work in San Francisco. I see these people like sleeping on the streets, right? For you to go and join them so you can actually empathize with what they're going through is extremely courageous. It's actually a very daunting thought, you know? Um, but that that was who Orwell was. Is like he was, he was a pursuer of truth. He was a pursuer of individual rights and freedom and a supporter of the common man. And he refused to let any party tell him, you know, like, like swindle him out of his own firsthand experience. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why I think in the spirit of that, it's important for us to see the injustice on all sides of the spectrum and not be like... Um, Just tied to one party without further thought. Yeah, that, that's Orwell's biggest, biggest thing is like, be a human being, you know, like support individual rights and think for yourself. Yeah, because every, yeah. every group has its weaknesses. It's not like, yeah. it's not perfect in yeah. every way. Mm-hmm. 100%. Hundred percent, yeah, and um, and Orwell really like that. That's the thing about Orwell's background is it wasn't this theoretical critique from like a distance of authoritarianism. It was he was in a British boarding school, um, Saint Cyprian's, where he was treated like an animal. He he, that was his first experience with authoritarianism. He, was it he was a, sorry, I spoke over the end. No, of the go experience. ahead, go ahead. Um, you said it was his first experience with what? Somethingism? Um, authoritarianism? Authoritarianism. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you said it was, he was treated badly, not because all students were treated badly, but because he was, um, was it a scholarship student or yeah. something? Yeah. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. you said earlier. Yeah, yeah the, the middle class scholarship students were treated the worst because they they weren't paying. And the the people who ran the school saw it as their, their um, obligation to squeeze... Uh, a scholarship out of them so that they can say, hey, our school produced people who went to Eton. So Eton is like, um, it's like Andover or Exeter, but of England. And Eton feeds like, you know, Cambridge, Oxford, like the royal family goes yeah. there. So this school that he went to, he, he was a scholarship student and like... So this was like middle school then? Young yeah, middle yeah. School. Okay. Yeah, and it was severely abusive. Um, an example is like, he was a bedwetter and... They would like beat him for bedwetting and make him like report himself to the principal. And he said that was his first experience of like realizing that 
there's something you, like you're doing wrong without intending to, without knowing you're doing wrong, and you can't stop yourself from doing wrong. Yeah. Uh. And if you take that description, I mean, isn't that just like similar to, in a way, being like, not, not the actual like bedwetting and being beaten, but the principle of you're born wrong, you're, you're wrong no matter what, you can't fix it. Yeah. Isn't that similar to being a Jew in Nazi Germany or being, you know, like um, a class trader in, in Marxist Russia? Is like this guilt that is just foisted upon you that's inescapable according to this like yeah or system. or in the case of yeah. like Judaism like you don't feel guilty but you're persecuted for something that you are yeah 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 well that, that that that's that's the beauty of like you know having a tradition that can kind of like that you can kind of sit back into and be like hey um, we have a self understanding that transcends what people are putting on to us but as a child you lack that. You know, and if you're divorced from your intellectual tradition, you could also lack that because mm. you have, you know, maybe a, a rootless kind of uh, intellectualism where you can be pushed around and made to feel ma- ma- made to feel guilty yeah. by nefarious actors. Yeah, because I mean, again, like with the also with the bedwetting, like you shouldn't necessarily feel guilty. Yeah, maybe you you would like to change and not wet your bed, but. Like, it doesn't mean you have to feel, like, all guilty and horrible about it. No. But you're made to feel guilty by, like, that, for example, that system where he would get punished. Yeah. Um, yeah. In a way that wasn't helping him with his issue at all. Or, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the guilt guilt is not going to help. And frankly, like, I mean, I, I don't know that much about bedwetting. But if you're if he's, like, waking up and he's wet the bed, I mean... It's while he's sleeping. Yeah. No, it's, like, yeah, it's he while supposed he's to sleeping. Do. That's yeah. what bedwetting is. Yeah. Yeah. So he's completely unconscious. Honestly, anxiety and adding to that anxiety probably made it worse. I'm guessing. 100%. Or can do that. Yeah. Yeah, but, but like, <laughs> the point I'm trying to make make with this is, oh, like... <laughs> no, you're, you're fine. Like, it's like or- Orwell... Orwell is not an armchair critic. He's not like, oh, over there, the idea of, like, totalitarianism is bad. He's like, I've experienced this in boarding school. I've experienced this in the Spanish Civil War when I fought. And, like, you know, he was shot through the neck. And instead of being treated like a hero, he was persecuted and hunted by Marxists. Because he was in the wrong uh, faction, right? Yeah. 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 Quote, unquote, wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he saw it with the fascists on the other side. He, he experienced it in England when, like, you know, he ordered illegal books and the government literally came with police officers to his door um, to, you know, confiscate them. Wow. Um, he experienced it at the BBC where literally, like, censors would be listening into every single radio broadcast, broadcast with a button where they can, like, push a button and cut out parts of the live broadcast at any time. Wow. Yeah. So he his experience with totalitarianism was... And also he experienced it seeing the intent of, even as a socialist, the intent of English socialists of the time um, to bludgeon their opponents into submission and and, uh, impose conformity, you know? Um, Wow, when you think about it that way, he was was like perfectly poised to write what he wrote in 1984, for the 1984 piece. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's timeless. Like that—that's what makes him timeless. Is he's—he's he's a voice that stands against injustice. He's not like a, he's not left. He's not right. I mean, 
self-proclaimed he's like a leftist his friends at eaton would call him a tory anarchist which is like um like a republican anarchist Hmm. so you know he 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 defies like easy categorization um he considered himself to be a socialist but the point is like he transcends his context by far you know and he he had no sacred cows his only sacred cow was was freedom this really makes me want to read 1984. Yeah, me too. I saw the movie when I was really young, or parts of it, and it seemed like really brutal to me, and I don't think I could really take it. I was like, I'm never going to read this book, or like, anything. Um, yeah, I just have so, like a couple images in my mind, but I don't really remember the movie other than that. Um, but now I feel as though I'm likely old enough to take it on. Yeah. And knowing this context is also really interesting. So maybe I'll find a good audiobook. Yeah. That's how I prefer. That's that's my favorite way for pleasure reading. Yeah. To, to take in pleasure reading. So I think I think that's a great idea. And if you do, like I would love to talk about it on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> have, have you haven't read it yet? I actually no, I have not read it yet. Yeah, which is why I'm really excited to I'm really excited to read it. I'm really excited to read it. Because I think this essay, well, understanding, first of all, like, Orwell's life and kind of reading through Orwell's life, um, and then understanding this essay, I think, will be a really good... um, Foundation. Good foundation for the reason that a key element of 1984 is Newspeak. So it's, Mm. it's the construction of a language that precludes truthful descriptions of reality. Um... For the express purpose of like controlling the population, and and this essay is about how how uh, vagary like vagueness and ugliness and um, staleness serve as a shield for brutality and uh, manipulation. Mm. So this is almost like a a guide Precursor. to like yeah yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah yeah, and an interesting part of um, 1984 is like. This like two plus two equals five thing, where the where the protagonist is like, he he's putting his foot down. He's like, I refuse to say that two plus two equals five. So that's that's in the book. Yeah, yeah, and and the 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 villains are like trying to like force him to accept the two plus two equals five, like you know, torture him into it. Oh. Um, Wait, did you hear? Where did you hear this? If you haven't read the book. Um, I've been going through like a lecture series on Orwell, which oh, okay. which I do recommend. So the re- lecture series is. Uh, great courses, George Orwell, A Sage for All Seasons. And the essay collection is just uh, George Orwell, A Collection of Essays by Harcourt. Um, and I, I would highly recommend uh, the course and reading the essays as you go through. Um, yeah. Good context. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so yeah, they're trying to beat him into saying that 2 plus 2 equals 5. Um, and I think where you were going next, if I may continue, mm-hmm. is that there are some schools, what, what are they calling it? Teaching, calling it like new math or something like something that, math, yeah. like self-truth math. No, I just made that up, but, um, it's, it's... where there's actually in some schools in, in the U S yeah. right. I mean, I just heard this from Ion, so if I'm wrong, then, uh. Don't. It's, it's my fault, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that there are schools in the U.S. that allow this new math system where 2 plus 2 can equal 5. 
Which yeah. is just like, it can never be tr- true. Like, it's not about opinion. It's about, you have two objects, you, you take two more objects, you group them all together, there's not going to mystically produce a fifth object, unless it's some sort of chemical reaction or something. Yeah. It's not about adding two and two, and then more it's about like some sort of like uh, you know chemical or biological reaction. I think you I, know the, it's. I think it's like a cocktail of different factors. Like I, I think. Um, I think luckily, like th- this, this at least is still more of a fringe movement. But yeah, I think I heard like there's a school in Oregon who's who's doing shit like this. But if you take a step, a couple steps back, right? Like last week we were talking about postmodernism. Yeah. One of the predicates of postmodernism is like going against the Aristotelian principle of non-contradiction. So Aristotelian principle of non-contradiction means that, you know, a logical contradiction cannot be true. Mm-hmm. So you cannot be like, you know, um, let's say like here and not here at the same time. Like that's, that's not logically like sensible. Um, well, you bring in Schrodinger's cat. Yeah, yeah, right. and and actually, interestingly, like, I I would say every modern modern intellectual movement at some point like resorts to like using like pseudo physical like you know, <laughs> kind of like ju- justifications. Like even Buddhism, they like go like all quantum on you. You know, they're like, but in the quantum world, it's mostly emptiness. <laughs> It's like, I don't know if the Budo, that's what he meant, but, but that's okay, you know. But, but yeah, so this Aristotelian principle of non-contradiction, basically, like, if, if that's the case, then, like, you know, um, our logical systems break down and, like, 2 plus 2 doesn't have to equal 4. Um, but anyway, that, that's, that's beside the point. But I just find it ironic that, like, literally... Literally something that's Orwellian is being like is being proposed. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm just shaking my head for those who can't see me right now. I mean, it's just it makes me almost speechless. It's so ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I will. I will never admit that two plus two equals five because it doesn't. Well, and I and I think for for all of us, um, if there's one thing you can you can take away from this this essay. Or just from Orwell's life is never admit that two plus two equals five. If you don't, if it's not your experience that two plus two equals five, do not admit that two plus two equals five. At the bare minimum, just keep silent. <laughs> At best, like communicate that you don't think that's the case. But yeah. Um, but okay, getting back into the meat of what makes um, this political language bad. Mm-hmm. And and how how does the badness of the language contribute to its um, shield-like property? So you were at, you were, we were talking about stale metaphors. So he he kind of talks about it like you when you're writing about something, you should picture it in your mind, and then you should use words to describe what it is that you're trying to say. As opposed to letting words lead the meaning, let meaning lead the words. And he's like, if you're using all these stale metaphors you're stitching together, um, they've just lost all evocative power and you're just saving yourself the trouble of inventing phrases for yourself. You know? 
So one example he gives is like the hammer and the anvil. He's like the implication when people are talking about like the hammer and the anvil is like the anvil has it worse. But he's like, if you actually think for a minute, it's always the anvil that breaks the hammer. And a writer who stopped to think about what he was saying would be aware of this and would avoid perverting the original phrase. What's the original phrase? Sorry, it's not one I've heard before, so let me hear it again. Yeah, so it's like, um, like kind of this metaphor of the hammer and the anvil. So wait, let me let me think about that. That there's this song about it. It's like, I'd rather be a hammer than a nail. Instead of nail, it's like anvil. Oh, okay. So it's like you know, let's say. In the context of George Orwell, like in, in the 40s, let's say something like the bourgeoisie are a hammer, you know, beating upon the backs of the anvil, you know, consisting of the proletariat, mm-hmm. right? Like if I was writing like a communist pamphlet, that's what mm-hmm. it might be like. Um, but what he's saying is if you actually like use your brain and like stop and think, the anvil always wins against the hammer, you know? Hmm. And actually after I read this essay, I stopped and I like rewrote that like case study I showed you because I was like I'm using a lot of canned phrases here like am I really thinking you know maybe I'm not thinking you know interesting yeah I mean the come the comeback or the response for that criticism say if someone uses that phraseology is oh it's not a perfect uh metaphor you know yeah this other metaphor is better because of that you know they might accept the criticism to the metaphor but not say that it necessarily applies to the reality that they're trying to point at yeah you know, the criticism could be limited to the metaphor itself you mm. know what i mean mm. so tell me more so what i hear from yeah. orwell is that he's saying you got to think about what people are writing. And the example he's using is this metaphor. Could be analogy. I get the two mixed up, but we're just going to go with metaphor. Yeah. So this metaphor of the anvil and the, the hammer. And if you think about it, this metaphor isn't implying what the writer's trying to say it implies. Yeah. Um, it's actually that the anvil is more dangerous. And what I sense is that Orwell wants us to conclude that thus the uh, the object of the metaphor, which is which is the political situation, should then have this other implication because the metaphor is breaking down. Um, but the the counter argument to his criticism could be okay, yes, we take your point. Um, this metaphor isn't saying what we want it to say, but the, the, you know, the truth, quote, unquote, truth of the political situation is still thus. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, may, so, maybe but so, I, yeah. I do, I do, th- I just think Orwell's point could be made better here. Um, yeah, that's fair. In that fair. sense. Uh, hmm. But I still, I still agree with this point that you got to think deeply about what people are saying and not just take it at face value. Yeah, Which yeah. his deeper point is, I think, the most important part. But I yeah, just I mean, thought I'd make that criticism. What, what he proposes, like, what he proposes is something like this. He's like, you know, probably the, the best way to, to write truthfully is 
Put off using words as long as possible and get one's meaning as clear as one can through pictures or sensations. Afterwards, choose, not simply accept, the phrases that will best cover the meaning and then switch around and decide what impression one's words are likely to make on another person. Interesting. Do you think that's why he chose novels as a mode of communication? Because he showed... For example, in 1984, he was showing an example of a narrative of um, a man and his experience. At least I think the protagonist is is a man, mm-hmm. um, from what I vaguely remember. Um, and then probably some philosophy slipped in later in the novel, I'm assuming. So is mm-hmm. that an example of what he's saying? Like, show first. So show through story is what he could be doing in 1984 and then later more explicitly perhaps in dialogue some philosophical chosen words to demonstrate to further like expand upon what's being shown yeah yeah i think think that's what he's referring to potentially i think he chose novels for a lot of reasons but but i think i think yes i mean i think he chose novels to to express concretely and make felt the injustice that he or or the you know the mistake that he's trying to kind of like shed light on you know or mistaken assumption um yeah so i I think that's why he chose it as like he's an enemy of abstraction he he likes he likes the real he likes the truthful he likes the concrete Mm -hmm. and to him like you know novel is a a story driven kind of like humanistic like format to talk about that um and he also says he does this imperfectly so you know he's like i probably have done done these negative things like several times in uh, this essay you know use canned phrases um yeah i can give you his little like rules oh yeah let's do it yeah so his, his like rules on like how to how to like write truthfully um are as follows so never use a metaphor simile or other figure of speech which you are used to seeing in print Never use a long word when a short one will do. Hmm. If it's possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. Never use the passive where you can use the active. Never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word, or a jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. Hmm. Break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. Interesting. Yeah. I think I've heard that phrase before. Never use a long word where a short word will do. Yeah, he's like, they, they sound elementary, and so they are, but they demand a deep change in attitude in anyone who has grown used to writing in the style that's now fashionable. And <clears throat> that the style he's talking about is is still fashionable. You know, like, if you grab, um, you know, some political writing today, very likely they're going to appeal to authority implicitly by using big words and elaborate concepts and trying to, like, you know, perform that intellectual sleight of hand yeah use scientific words where where a more straightforward layman's term would do yeah the same thing yeah use all tired all these tired metaphors yes Um, yeah all i mean that's essentially what buzzwords are it's also like buzz phraseology 100 percent. yeah and in business they do the same thing yeah um yeah and i mean i think in business it's, it's a crime too the difference between business and politics is like this kind of vagary and non-specificity and like you know um 
pseudo intellectualism in business the result of it is we don't make stuff we don't make the right stuff we don't make it fast enough or enough of it and we don't solve the problems we're trying to solve uh, in politics the consequence is heads on pikes because you know politics is um, the art of coercion and violence business is you know the art of consensually producing goods and services to solve problems for people um, so the stakes are a little lower in business, but still pretty high because if you spend your entire life working a job, that you, you want something to show for it. You don't just want like, um, you know, a convoluted set of buzzwords. You want like a real impact. Yeah. You know, so. You want just you don't want a hand wavy impact. You want yeah something concrete. Yeah, and I think this is very real. You know. Um, yeah. Such an interesting figure. Yeah, he, he, he really is an, an, a very inspiring figure. Yeah, it really makes me question myself. Uh, Why is that? Well, I just feel like... Am I doing enough to stand up for my values? You know, like George Orwell, like he... He went to such extremes to stand up for his values, you know, like... Um, going to Spain and fighting in the Spanish Civil War as a civilian, like sleeping among the homeless to like understand their plight, um, working in in the fields to understand like the the plight of like laborers, you know. Um, I I just think it's um, yeah, it just makes me wonder, you know. It makes no, me I mean, wonder. You're doing things like effective or altrui altruism. Yeah. And things of that nature. Yeah, that's that, that, that is nice. Your life. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I guess it's it's not a bad thing to think about. No, it's sure. not. It's yeah. not. Yeah, it's not a bad thing to think about. Um, but everyone can't. Yeah. Like, if everyone was like Orwell and just dropped everything to investigate these realities. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much good that would do. Yeah, I think that I think that's true. I think that, that I think that that's definitely somewhat true. But the question that I'm asking myself, and you know, you guys can can join me in asking, is just like, what are the things that we could do to like be more honest and to stand up for the things that we believe in, you know, mm. and to stand up for for um, unflattering truth, you know, because that's another thing about Orwell is he believed that. The truth is always unflattering. And like he has that saying where it's like, uh, autobiography is only to be trusted when it reveals something disgraceful about you. I love that quote. You know? So what are the things that we could be doing that we're not doing, you know? Um, I think with the effect of altruism stuff, we do pretty pretty damn good because it's, it's expensive out here. And like, you know, I spend more on that than I do on my car. And on my like monthly fun money, like almost combined, I think. So I'm giving up the Porsche to try to do something. Figuratively, but... giving up the Porsche. Yeesh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> the point being is, yeah. So I'm 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 trying out here, but. Well, I'm like... not saying you're getting a Porsche. I just meant we didn't have a Porsche Porsche that we literally gave away. No, the, like I'm I'm talking about the theoretical Porsche, like the opportunity cost. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's what I was trying to get at. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I also think, like, or Orwell, you know, when you talk about Orwell as, like, not to use a canned phrase, but, like, a prophet of freedom, 
his life course is is um is strange and unique you know like for folks who are trying to like um have a family and kind of like live a normal life like it's hard to be like it's time to drop everything and and uh, fly to afghanistan you know but but hey here's a counter example right there's the guy called tim kennedy who's like a former like special forces soldier and that's what he did like after all the fuckery in afghanistan he literally got on a plane with his friends who were private civilians and personally went over there to like try to do something if they come back are they still there um, I'm not. I'm not sure. Was, yeah. It's worth checking, but yeah. that that's George Orwell right there. Except, you know, George Orwell is a writer, so I. He, but he went to war once. Yeah, but this guy, like Tim Kennedy, I think is going to be a little more useful out there. But. But so is Orwell in the sense that he synthesized all this great experience and brought it back, and you know, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Yeah, I, I, I think it's admirable that it's very admirable. whether or not he's less effective, the, you know, the fact that he went over there. To oh, fight, 100%. Yeah, Spain, I believe. Yeah, yeah, the um, courage you is... You know, that's, that's something. I haven't gone anywhere to fight, you know? No, yeah, and, and the Oops. thing, the other thing, too, is, like, he stayed out there for a long time. Like, he stayed out there until he got shot in the neck. And he, like, you know, he... Um, Survived that, which is incredible yeah actually his neck wound is still studied to this day by doctors because it's such a like you know strange and rare thing where it just like getting shot in the neck like there aren't many ways you survive that but the bullet somehow managed to like avoid his like trachea and his like you know arteries and like just somehow slip through and he lived but um yeah Incredible. Yeah, he hadn't written his most famous works yet. So. No. What a loss that would have been. Yeah. And, and also, if, if Orwell had died right there, he would have been... I don't think he would have been a party man because he was never a party man, but he wouldn't have seen the other side of the coin. Because it was after he was shot that he was persecuted when he was recovering in the hospital. Exactly. Um, persecuted by the other factions. And after he got back, he got to see the disconnect between what he saw of the war and um, and the reality. Oh, or, sorry, the reality that he saw and what was being described by intellectuals and activists of the time. Uh, and how there was such a disconnect. Like, I mean, that must be the same today in wars going on today. You know, we're not hearing the plain truth when we hear about what's going on. Oh, 100%. I mean, there's no way... That we're hearing everything. Yeah, I mean the 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 way I mean not not just wars, everything, a every issue of consequence today, um, is only bears the vaguest resemblance with the truth, like just because of the the quantity of rhetoric, the social media back and forth. Yeah, everything has to be bite sized to consume and. And it's also more about what people are saying about the news rather than the news itself yeah. with social media. Yeah, and the, the need to cut through, you know, the need yeah. to, like, actually get on people's radar, you know? Exactly. Yeah, but here, here's, um, here is what, uh, here's what Orwell says about the Spanish War. Um, against the shifting phantasmagoric world in which black may be white tomorrow and yesterday's weather can be changed by decree... There are in reality only two safeguards. One is that however much you deny the truth, the truth goes on existing, as it were, behind your back. 
and you consequently can't violate it in ways that impair military efficiency. The other is that so long as some parts of the earth remain unconquered, the liberal tradition can be kept alive. So, you know... What are you trying to say there? I think he's trying to say that we can play with words all we want. We can, you know, twist them back and forth. We can say that 2 plus 2 equals 5. But 2 plus 2 still equals 4. And at some point you collide with the reality. Mm. So like an example that I heard on um, the What is Money podcast with Robert Breedlove is um, Michael Saylor was saying like the one of the richest people in China worth $30 billion was like vacationing in Europe and he was standing on a, a ruin. And he slipped and fell 50 feet to his death. Oof. So this guy, you know, he has an army of lawyers. He can literally, like, play this, like, war of words infinitely. And he can he can get out of just about everything, but reality intrudes. And he was, like, you know, sentenced to death by the law of gravity um, in moments. So I guess that's the thing is, like, you can keep saying, I can fly, I can fly, I can fly. But if you jump off the roof, at some point you might hit the floor. <laughs> you know? But that point is further and further away in today's world like if you look at theranos 12 years it took them 12 years for reality to intrude for context this is the startup that um it was supposed to the goal was to be able to do a bunch of tests on a single drop of blood so that people wouldn't have to um, get a bunch of blood taken for you know whatever uh, medical reason um, and yeah, as I had mentioned, it went on for 12 years before they found out that their technology barely worked at all. And they were doing a lot of things instead of using their, their device that they were working towards. Um, they were doing a lot of the, if not all the tests by hand or using third party machinery and their, uh, quality assurance was total shit. So they weren't even up to the current standards of um, labs today and lab testing. Yeah. So they weren't, yeah, let alone not, you know, not moving forward to the future and the future of testing blood, but also not even measuring up to current day standards of quality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was just, I mean insane and now there's this whole court case about it i think what the civil one's already ended but now the criminal one has begun or something something like that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, check out the uh the dropout podcast by abc news so <laughs> good. oh my gosh but also terrifying <laughs> yeah and it just illustrates this this um this aspect of modern western societies which is we're so cushioned from reality that in some ways, you can change yesterday's weather by decree. It takes a long time for reality to catch up mm. these days, um, which I think is a huge problem. Um, yeah, hopefully there aren't many Theranoses out there. There are. There are. I mean, like, what, I mean, what recently, like, there was a guy in my jiu-jitsu gym. Uh, I wish I could give him a shout-out. Uh, Eugene Robinson, check him out on Substack. Uh, he's a he's a he's a great writer, uh, great jujitsu player, terrible trash talk, 
super brutal. Terrible trash talk. But a lot of like good tips. He's always like, you had the world and now you've lost it. You know? <laughs> or he's always like, oh, I'm an old man. What am I going to do? And then he just like cho- chokes you, you out, crushes you. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, he his company, one of the executives impersonated a YouTube VP to investors, like ma- like made his, like pretended he was that person, ma- like made a fake voice. Like, just blatantly fraudulent. Like, this kind of, like, puffery um, It is, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's more common than it seems. And it, it's, it's uh, ubiquitous. It's not just politics. It's not just journalism. It's, uh, it's a world in which people think that you can just talk things into existence with no reference to reality. I guess... You know, that's the way it has been, too, with all these examples from George Orwell, you know? Um, I, I will say I still have faith in the world. I think it's wrong to totally lose faith. Yeah, I have everything, faith. you know? Yeah. Otherwise, you'd have to mistrust every company all the time, and that's not practical. Let's put you in a kind of schizophrenic state. Yeah, yeah you have to trust something. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely have faith. I mean... Um, what what was that guy, um, the the drug smuggler for like Pablo Escobar? He said Pablo Escobar was actually a very honest guy. But that's the talking to strangers problem. Yeah. By the way, <laughs> another great book, Talking to Strangers. Yeah. It's about how when you speak to someone face to face, all the pitfalls and knowing whether the person's being truthful or not, um, speaking what they believe. Uh, that is a great book. Yeah, yeah. I love that. It's book. a good recommendation. Who's it by again? Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, I think. Malcolm Gladwell. Also, if you can get the audio book, if you're interested in that book, the audio book is really good. Oh yeah. They actually, they have actual clips from um, court cases and things like that. So some of the things are in people's own voice. Yeah. So it's not just uh, someone reading quotes. Uh, that book was a wake up call. Yeah. He told so, me to always be parent, as paranoid as possible. Yeah. Never trust anyone. Yeah, one of the cases was about people who had spoken to Hitler and mm-hmm. came away being like, "Oh, he seems like a good guy." Or oh, dude. Yeah. So there's like there's yeah there's a lot of pitfalls. Sorry, I, I went off on a tangent. No, you're fine. Like <laughs> J- J. P. Morgan, um, one of their like senior partners in in the twenties, thirties, and forties, like was like best buds with Mussolini. For, like, decades. And, like, this guy, like, you know, he's not this, like, by by all accounts, just looking at his life before that, he's not this bloodthirsty character. But he was, like, literally, like, super entwined and, like, trying to help Mussolini, like, couch his atrocities towards the public. Because he's like, hey, it's going to be good for the country. It's, like, country, it's just insane. Like, Yeah. But I feel I feel as though that's uh, also a little bit different case than um, a lot of the book is people are honestly not sure when the person is speaking truth or not that they're that they're talking. But that to. happened to this guy where like you know Mussolini would just lie to him all the time and kind of rope him in and gradually over time he got his like hooks in this guy wow. you know yeah scary stuff scary scary yeah um one one thing I wanted to call out is. These principles of good writing that George Orwell mentions, ironically, or I don't know if this is irony. You'll have to tell me. But 
basically, like, if, if you write concretely, if, if you use word pictures, if you're story-driven, um, if you don't use stale metaphors, sorry, I dropped something. <laughs> like, these are the same types of things that make your idea stick more effectively, according to research, and also make your ideas more viral. Um, oh, if you stay away from those... Yeah, if you if you follow those principles, if you write concretely, if you use fresh metaphors, if you you know like think you know think first, think in terms of sensation and picture, and then layer the words on top and like find the right words to like mm-hmm. evoke that. Um, that that tends to be like much more effective at like getting through to people than these you know um, obscure, super abstract, super convoluted, stale kind of like tracts, you know. Do you feel like that's a good note to end on? Uh, I do, and um, yeah, I go and go and read some George Orwell. You can find his stuff online. Uh, this collection of essays is just called "A Collection of Essays" by George Orwell. Um, honestly, like life changing stuff, life changing stuff. I think this truly exemplifies why we're doing this. Is like one essay from this collection could change your life, you know. This was a great conversation. Yeah, I, re- I really enjoyed it. Me too. Good. Me too. Good. Um, check us out at uh, read- rdmr.io. Check out our podcast, Reading Rebellion, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And uh, you can hit us up on Twitter at rdmr underscore io. Um, or you can contact us at contact at rdmr.io. So a bunch of different options. Um And look out next week for The Signs of Storytelling Part 2. And uh, thank you for listening. Woo! Woo!